Hello, my name is Jason Maurice Porter, and I'm here once again with Noria, Mexico, and Central America. Um, it is uh, here, here once again with the Violence Takes Place series um, to discuss our final conversation in the series on gender, geography, and violence against women. It's our pleasure today to have with us professor from Loyola University in Chicago, Emma Santa Maria, uh, the author of several books, Violence and Crime in Latin America, Representations and Politics, and American Security, or Human Security, excuse me, and Chronic Violence in Mexico, New Perspectives and Proposals from Below. But we're here today to talk about her most her her latest book uh, in the context of our themes and our series of conversation. This book is called "In the Vortex of Violence: Lynching, Extra Legal Justice, and the State in Post Revolutionary Mexico." How are you doing, Hema? How are things in are How are things in uh, Chicago? Very good, Jason. I I am I am here. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Thank you so much for the invitation and the opportunity to talk to you and to participate in this interesting series. Uh, it's it's our pleasure to have you. You know, with this new book of yours, you're everywhere talking about it. So to get some time and to isolate some of um, our topics to, for today, I mean, it's a, it's a true pleasure. So to jump right in. Um, given your diverse disciplinary background, uh, inter international relations, MA in gender studies, PhD in um, sociology, what convinced you to write about the history of lynching in Mexico? Um, and before we jump into analyzing um, your latest um, insights on violence in this book, um, can you say more about lynching and state formation at the local level? Sure. Uh, thank you, Jason. Um, so, in a way, the you know the story of of how I became interested in the history of lynching in Mexico uh, is connected to the story of how I became a historian. So, I began uh, to be interested in this topic by looking at the occurrence of lynching in contemporary Mexico and trying to understand you know, the very basic question of what leads people to commit these acts of violence, I mean, to participate in this form of spectacular, cruel, public form of violence that, you know, many sociological theories, uh, and I'm thinking here, you know, from Max Weber to um, Emily Dorkheim, Foucault, even Norbert Elias, predict that decline with the advent of modernity and with the process of state formation. So I, I was intrigued by the fact that, you know, this happened today in Mexico and, and several other Latin American countries. And just, again, asking this basic question, what leads people to commit these atrocities or participate in this form of collective violence? Now, um, when I began to do the review of the literature that existed, uh, mostly written by sociologists, anthropologists, uh, political scientists, I, I came to the realization that many of them construe this phenomenon as a recent phenomenon um, that was 
directly linked to unfinished processes of democratization, to the transition to neoliberal economies in Latin America, as well as to either questions of state failure, uh, the absence of the state, the state, or a crisis in the state authority. For the case of Mexico in particular, several analysts claim uh, and continue to claim that lynching is an expression of the crisis in the authority forged by the PRI, I mean, by the kind of like political and social orders originated by the PRI, um, and also like a crisis in neoliberalism no? or a result of neoliberalism. And I, and I began to wonder, you know, I mean, I think uh, like you, like many of our listeners, I'm sure like you, you develop certain um, suspicion about like, um, like some agreements that exist in the literature and you begin to ask your own questions. So I began to, uh, to ask myself, one, is it true that this is a new phenomenon, especially having read the rich historiography of lynching in the United States? I began to wonder, is it true that this is something new? I mean, that's something that just has emerged over the last 30 to 40 years. And second, uh, I began to wonder, is it enough to understand lynching as a result of the absence of a state authority or a crisis uh, of the state? And what I found uh, by looking at the history of this practice in the post-revolutionary period, and also like in other uh, decades that I have uh, also studied, is that actually lynching is a result uh, or really an expression of the process of formation of the state in Mexico. I mean, it tells us a lot about the ways in which authority was formed in Mexico is intimately connected to the process of state building. No? So this goes to the second part of your question. Um, rather than being that signaling an absence of the state, in many instances, lynching reflected the presence of a state authority that was perceived as invasive, as illegitimate, as, as trying to, the, the central state was trying to meddle into affairs that were perceived as being local or pertaining to local affairs. And these include secularization efforts, modernization efforts, uh, the arrival of people from outside that were trying to, you know, like uh, impose norms about how should people go about uh, health, um, their education, questions of agrarian reform, uh, questions of religion. So so really like lynching reflected this kind of resistance towards the, the imposition of the state that the central state that was it's was imposing itself onto local affairs. And on the other hand, lynching also reflected the ways in which state actors also use extralegal forms of violence to impose social orders. So lynching was both a reflection of a state presence, no? I mean, the way in which the state uh, came to these communities, uh, and also lynching in a way mirror the types of uses of extralegal violence that state actors was using. So in this sense, lynching was part of a broader repertoire of extralegal forms of violence used by state and non-state actors. So the so again, like it was interesting to me uh, to, I mean, history allowed me to tell a different story really of, of, of lynching. And I believe that this story is, is particularly important to understand the present uh, and to go beyond this narrative that lynching expresses a state absence or simply a crisis uh, of a state authority. That's, uh, that's, that's, that's phenomenal. And as you make, as you make clear, 
and in in your work the um, the direction where the where the violence comes from and where it's going isn't as easy as a as a bottom up versus a top uh, down um, the and, and it's a, I, I look forward to hearing how uh, how violence manifests in different ways in relation to the state um, being present in in most of the circumstances right. Um, now, so and you don't just cover a few cases of, of, of lynching. You really step back, particularly in the post-revolutionary period, um, and you, you cover 300 cases or more than 300 cases of lynching in, in this period. One, why focus on this period? Um, and then also, can you set the scene for a listener? What did a lynching look like in Mexico? And where did they take place within Mexico? Did region... Or rurality matter at all? Thank you. Yes. So these are the very important questions. Um, so in terms of why this period, I mean, this is um, the 1930s up to the 1950s. That's a period that I studied. These three decades. These are very central decades to understand a post-revolutionary Mexico. And these are formative uh, decades. This uh, sign on the one hand, Mexico had witnessed the end of two major armed conflicts, the 1910 revolution, the civil war that ensued, and then the civil war, the Cristero War. Uh, so the 1930s, like, began with a promise that the country was going to experience like some process of pacification, I mean, especially under Lázaro Cárdenas, and really uh, signal the institutionalization and centralization of, of violence, of authority, of power, or at least the efforts from the central elites to centralize power and centralize the use of violence. It also signals uh, the state's efforts to modernize and incorporate rural communities, I mean, through several state-building projects, I mean, from education, secularization, military recruitment, the building of roads and bridges, I mean, like bringing vaccination, uh, sanitation campaigns, etc. So it's really um, a a very fundamental and formative period uh, of, of Mexico. Now, it is also a period that the recent historiography has increasingly examined through the lenses of this, what has been now called the myth of the Pax Prista. I mean, when you analyze this period, especially beginning in the 1940s from a macro perspective and in terms of the levels of lethal violence, in terms of homicides, it seems that the country has pacified. No, I mean, the, the, the levels of lethal violence are declining. Uh, there are less and less um, at the federal level, like a oppositions or, or or moments of violence amongst like leaders. So looked from the macro level or when you look at it from above, uh, the, the country seems to be on a steady path to pacification and political stability. However, um, what I wanted to, to tell is a story of violence that looks at violence and specifically lynching and vigilante justice from the perspective of below, uh, that looks at how it happens at the margins uh, or what is considered at the margins, you know, in, in rural communities, uh, in the spaces where, you know, that escape this kind of like state center and center center 
narratives of violence that uh, had up until recently caught the attention of most historians and social scientists. And so when you looked at the history of violence through the lenses of lynching, you can go beyond uh, this, again, like the, the kind of violence that is committed only by the state or the type of violence that takes place at the center, you know, and that takes place only in the in those um you know, like big localities that make it to the mainstream uh, history. Now, this takes me to the question of locality. I mean, and, and this is an interesting, uh, this is a very interesting point. So lynchings, what I found is that they take place both in rural and urban areas. Um, so contrary to some of the press representations uh, that were prevalent at the time and some of the official discourses by the political elites, Lynching did not happen only in remote areas, nor did they happen in, in communities that were, you know, backward and, and completely untouched by modernity. I mean, that was the very much the claim that you find in, in, in mainstream newspapers as well as in official discourse. But they happened also in cities. So they took place in Mexico City, Mexico City, Puebla. I mean, these are places that are that occupy a prevalent place, I mean, in those more than 300 cases that I that I examine. But they also indeed take place uh, in, in rural areas. But these rural areas, again, they were not, you know, some, some sort of like remote communities completely uh, free from the intervention of the state. And as a matter of fact, what I claim is that, again, lynching was, a reaction to all these modernization and centralization efforts by the state. So these communities uh, were communities that were being altered, I mean, which social and political orders were being altered by the intervention of the state, including the agrarian reform, the secularization efforts of the state, uh, and that therefore um, these, these, these lynchings were again, signaling communities' uh, reaction to these changes. I mean, communities' uh, reactions to these transformations, they were far from being untouched. As a matter of fact, they were precisely modernization was creating these lynchings. No, I mean, this was a result of that encounter between a state and, and, and society and the, at the local level. And also lynchings reflected long-term intercommunity conflicts. No, I mean, this is something that I want to emphasize um, lynchings, although in a first reading they might appear as being sporadic and as being, uh, you know, like completely like an act of frenziness, what I, I argue is that they are actually connected to long-term intercommunity conflicts. No, I mean uh, the agrarian reform, of course dislocated like certain agreements that existed at the local level and lynching is a reflection of that. So are lynchings that are connected to Catholic beliefs, no, I mean, and the efforts of the state to secularize these communities, but also to the anti-clerical uh, impulse of, of some of these federal efforts, such as the socialist education. So again, like lynchings is um, very much connected to these intra-community conflicts, to these like long uh, also, like long-term perceptions of what constitutes dangerousness, what constitutes the other. So we cannot really uh, understand lynching without looking at this long history. Now, the the last thing that I would say uh, is connected to the, fa to, to the to your question about how do they how do they look like like uh, lynchings in Mexico, and I really like this question because I think there is a certain. Um, 
there's a certain sequencing in the performing of lynching, uh, in the performance of this form of violence that is very recognizable. And this is, of course, an ideal type. So I don't intend to say that all lynchings look like that. But if I were to tell you what a typical lynching looked like in, in post-revolutionary Mexico, um, it would be as follows. Uh, it begins with a rumor. It always begins with a rumor, with an accusation uh, that someone claims to have seen someone else doing some wrongdoing. And this wrongdoing doesn't need to be a crime or a crime as we understand it today. It might be a social transgression. I mean, an act of witchcraft or someone that subscribes socialist or communist ideas um, uh, or a, a, a kidnapper. No, I mean, so, so, so several social transgressions uh, provoke lynchings. And so it all starts with a rumor. Then um, usually you had the tolling of the church bells. I mean, the tolling of the church bells, uh, which signal uh, a way in which people would, would gather. No, I mean, it was a, um, a, an instrument to convene members of the community and to announce that an, a lynching was about to happen. And the use of these bells, uh, you, I'm sure you know, like this goes back to the colonial times and also to the 19th century riots. No, So it's using the sequence of the events is not um, for treatrous. It has to do with this like longer history of how the ringing of church bells is associated with rebellion, I mean, or with... Um, it signals that something is about to happen. And then uh, people would drag that suspected criminal or social transgressor to a recognizable public space. I mean, it could be a plaza outside of a church, outside of a public school. And then people would gather around this person and would begin to beat this person, use violence against him or her. Uh, the forms of violence or the kind of like the the transcript of violence used in, in, in Mexico is, is, is plural. I mean, it's, 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 quite, it's quite plural. It includes uh, maiming, I mean, the torturing of the body, but also like a hanging, burning. No? So there were like several techniques that were used against the victim. Again, this is the ideal type. I mean, there were other cases that take place in a less ritualistic manner, uh, simply when people witness uh, a misconduct in the streets and reacted quickly by surrounding the victim, um, collectively punishing him or her. Uh, and these are... Uh, uh, these are found for the most part in, in, in cities. Uh, and this, you know, I think people that, ha that follow news about lynchings in Mexico and Latin America at large will recognize this. No, I mean, how there are like both cases today in Mexico that follow this more complex sequencing and that are more staged, no? that begin with the tolling of the church bells even today, uh, with the circulation of rumors and that end up with the killing, the cruel killing or overkilling of the victim, but there are others that are more, um, that are less ritualistic, no? I mean, and that are more, uh, that happen in a more, in, in a more quick way uh, and do not have these ritualistic elements. And, and the last thing I would say about this sequencing of the performance of lynching is that, you know, we see many of these um, elements in, in a lot of the films of the so-called golden age of Mexican cinema. So the films by Emilio Elindio Fernandez, uh, including Maclovia, Maria Candelaria, Rio Escondido, and before that, uh, uh, Janitzio of uh, Carlos Navarrete. 
they include a scenes of lynching that follow precisely this sequencing. I mean, this kind of performance that I just described. And it was fascinating to me to find in the archive that this description is accurate. No, I mean that they were there was indeed this kind of transcript of uh, of the sequencing of lynching, and 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 you can find also this in in, in the film Canoa. No, I mean in a more recent uh, recent iteration um, that refers back to the lynching in 1968 uh, in in Canoa, Puebla. Wow, the layers there are there are many. The layers there are many from from problematizing the idea that. Um, that the post-revolutionary period led into a, a time that was less violent, to showing that 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 the type of violence did not only did it exist, but it existed both in rural and urban spaces, um, uh, and that it, 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 and that that the, the, it wasn't these weren't untouched spaces. It was the touching of the state that mattered. It was it was precisely those contact zones that mattered. You layer it so nicely, and how you've how you've presented us the uh, what the lynching looks like. I mean, you write about it, right? The way you write about it, the hundreds, sometimes thousands of people that gather at these events. I mean, that you re- that really do show that these were these couldn't have only been rural phenomena, really. Um, which is, I think is really tremendous. So thank you for that description, carrying us through the rumor um, and uh, to the to the church bell. So transitioning for uh, to like for whom the bell tolls. Um, who, who committed a a little bit more on like who committed uh, the lynchings? It seems like they were committed for a lot of different reasons you've mentioned. So give us a little bit more idea of who committed the lynchings. And then, and then uh, we'll, we'll jump a little bit more into your, um, your, your, your methodologies and gender studies and sociology. Feel free to chime on that early if you want to, but in terms of who committed the lynchings and, you know, who were the victims, um, were women, what, what, what were the relations of women in, involved um, with the lynchings as well? Yes. Uh, so, so again, I think, I mean, this is a, a very good question because, um, so of the, of the 366 cases that I analyzed of lynching, uh, the vast majority, over 90% of the victims were male. Um, but interesting, interestingly enough, when women were victimized by lynching, in most cases, I found it was related to accusations of witchcraft. So I think that this tells you a lot about the gender dimensions of these types of accusations. I mean, these women, women that were accused of being witches, uh, and, and many of these women were like witches, but also like spiritists, uh, yerbalists, no? curanderas. No? I mean, so, so many of these women were powerful and influential actors. I mean, they, they were known for their use of magic, uh, and they defined notions of, of uh, submissiveness, domesticity, motherly care about uh, women being victims. No, I mean, these were women that could hurt men. These were women that, uh, again, had power, were influential. I mean, people saw them because they, they had these magical powers and, and they were able to perform good, but also perform evil. Um, and so that made them also more susceptible to being victims of of, of these collective forms of violence or of, of scapegoating. So it's interesting, again, like the, the fact that when women were victims of lynching, it was related to accusations of witchcraft. Again, it's very telling of the gender dimensions of these accusations and also the gender dimensions of lynching itself. Now, women also participated as perpetrators of lynching. Uh, and again, um, 
I mean, this is this is interesting and it, it kind of connects to the way in which I conceptualize, conceptualize lynching that you mentioned at the beginning. No, I mean, lynching is a form of violence that really escapes um, binary understandings of violence as a top-down or bottom-up phenomena uh, or as being perpetrated only by the powerful or the powerless. I mean, women that traditionally have been construed as victims, they were also perpetrators of these forms of violence. And I'm not talking only about them, um, you know, being part of the of, of the dozens of people that participated, but in some cases that actually had they were leading lynchings. I mean, they were uh, instrumental in circulating the rumors that led to a lynching. And there is an interesting, fascinating case that I narrate in 1930 Puebla um, of Balbina de la Rosa, alias La Borrega, who instigates this lynching against Edgar Kuhlman, no? this, this man that was uh, carrying out uh, some sort of ethnographic work. Uh, and he was accused of being, um, of of kidnapping children in order to steal their body fat, no? I mean, so Balbina de la Rosa began the circulation of the rumor, and then she was uh, participating in, in 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 the actual killing of Kulman, no? Which was very cruel. I mean, they they hang him, they 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 tear him apart. Um, there's also the case of Teodora Medina, uh, who participated in the lynching in Sengyu, Michoacán, in 1947 against uh, the the veterinary doctor and the military. Uh, personnel that were participating in the food and mouth disease eradication campaign. I mean, she was a member of the Sinarquista Union. Uh, she was like known in the community for having uh, the respect of others. I mean, she was really a leader at the, at the community level. And she, again, like it's named by several people that testify. I mean, in the Supreme Court case, it, this case makes it into the Supreme Court. And, and she actually, you, you know, like she is the one that uh, gouges the eye out of the military commander. Uh, she stabs the veterinary doctor, no? So, so again, lynching offers a fascinating uh, window into how women are certainly not just like passive victims, but they can also be perpetrators of, of violence, no? And and, and really uh, pushes us to um, to problematize these gender notions that we have about uh, domesticity, passivity, victimhood. That's, uh, yeah, very, very, yeah, I mean, the descriptions that you present in the book are just tremendously vivid, um, and uh, you definitely, you definitely, you close the book for a second, you know, catch your breath, and then you have, you dig back into it, right? Um, so can you tell us a little bit more about um, methods? Um, um, you're, you're, you know, using gender, at, you know, your gender studies background, um, PAC and sociology. This is a different type of history work. Um, and then also, um, you could also focus, uh, expand a little bit more on um, how you use those um, those lenses to provide insight on how religion can help us understand uh, violence in Mexico. Mm -hmm. Thank you. So, so I think I think of myself. Um, uh, really as a historian that asks socio socio sociological questions uh, about state formation, violence, religion, social control. Uh, but I also think of myself as a sociologist uh, that likes to answer questions through historical analysis. No? So I have like these two um, disciplinary hats, if you will. No? So I think 
I think my background in, in, in sociology and also like in gender studies allows me to observe certain patterns and historical trajectories through the viewpoint of critical social theory. You know? So for instance, uh, the observation that is not a state absence, but a state presence, uh, the notion that lynching defies top-down and bottom-up characterizations of violence, um, the understanding of lynching as a form of social control, the gender dimensions of scapegoating and violence. These are all things that are informed by, by my understanding of critical social theory, um, and, and then I apply them to understand what I see and what I found in the archive. Um, and I think my gender lenses, of course, like as, as I, I already said, like they, they allow me to place women not only as victims of violence, but also as perpetrators. No? I mean, as agents that have uh, their own interests, um, their own political ideologies um, uh, when it comes to orchestrating and legitimating these acts of, of violence. At the same time, like I would like to say that um, history has a lot to offer to the social sciences, uh, as well as to you know sociological and anthropological studies of violence, that in a way tend to be quick uh, in making generalizations, no? in, in seeing certain phenomena as being entirely new. I mean, the, the, the case of lynching is one of them, but also we can say the same about drug-related violence. Um, so that instead of identifying like ruptures and, and continuities, like they tend to see them as, as completely new. Um, I think history also offers a necessary corre corrective to certain, uh, you know, conceptual reductionism um, because history shows the messiness. No? I mean, it shows you how, uh, yes, I mean, in theory, certain things look like in a way, but in practice, they look very different. And so let me just give you a couple of examples. Like, uh, like first, like in, in political science in particular, there is like a very rigid distinction between vigilantism uh, and lynching. I mean, and vigilantism tends to be uh, understood as being more organized, as being more premeditated, um, and lynching as being more spontaneous and more disorganized. What I found in practice is that there are several connections between vigilante groups. I mean, in, in, the, in the area that I study or in the uh, decades that are studied between Segunderos, for instance, participants of the Second Cristiada or Sinarquistas, no? I mean, who were like vigilantes and the lynch mob. I mean, these um, members that uh, people that participate in the lynch mob belong to these vigilante groups. And some of these vigilantes counted with the participation of of lynching perpetrators in order to carry out their attacks against, let's say, uh, socialist teachers or Protestants in the 1940s. So again, the lines uh, between these two phenomena on the ground is much more messy. And I think history is, is, is a fantastic, uh, you know, way to, to, to make this more complicated analysis. Another example, uh, again, the notion that the state formation or the greater presence of the state at the local level will bring about a reduction in spectacular forms of violence or that will lead somehow to a pacification. I mean, the Mexican examples clearly shows that this is not the case, no? I mean, that again, the occurrence of lynching was driven by the presence of these state authorities that not only were um, invading areas that were considered local affairs, uh, but they were also perpetrated themselves acts of violence, no? I mean, and, and in, in so doing, they contributed to, to this idea that lynching was therefore legitimate in the eyes of people. Um, now, the question of religion, it's, it's a very important one too, because I feel that 
You know, in, in general, I feel that the role of religion in the organization and legitimation of violence has ne has been neglected by uh, by most historiography and also by 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 several social sciences scientists. Uh, there, there exists a very rich, of course, uh, historiography on the Cristero uh, War and on the reasons that led Catholics to take up arms. Uh, back then, and um, there is the work, of course, of Jan Meyer, I mean, uh, Matthew Butler, and more recently, I think other historians such as Robert Wise, Enrique Guerramanzo have begun to put violence in the center. But for the most part, uh, the question is about war or the question is about armed conflict. Um, and I think it's fundamental, I mean, especially in a country like Mexico, where religion is at the center of how like the moral compass of communities uh, and it's so intimately connected to intra-community conflicts, to questions of politics, uh, also like to, to material considerations that we understand how religion serves to legitimate and to collectivize violence. No, So in, in the case of lynching, it's clear that parish priests play a key role in legitimating lynchings, as did Catholics, despite the fact that the church was uh, officially decrying uh, the use of violence, um, people reappropriated or reinterpreted like, like Catholic values in order to, or notions of martyrdom and sacrifice in order to justify lynchings against socialists, communists, Protestants and state representatives that were anti-clerical or that were perceived as threatening the, the the religious dominant social order that existed at the local level. So, so again, like very rich questions. But I think uh, again, I want to insist that this there's so much cross fertilization between social sciences and, and history, and I and I always try to to do that because I think when you study violence, that's the way to go. <laughs> No, that is that's perfect. It's perfect how you put that. How uh, the historical tools helps uh, social sciences and sociology in particular, and how you also bring sociological tools to the history. It comes out so clearly, you know, in the patterns that you observe, in the different ways that you know critical social theory comes out um, in your analysis, and then also in the and then how you use history to kind of show the the contingencies. Um, where, loca where locality matters, where it doesn't. Um, and then, yeah, it's really exciting to see how you center religion um, uh, because I feel like from from a U.S. perspective, especially as a, as a Black person in the United States, when I think of lynching, I, you know, I think of, you know, not just the U.S. South, but I think of racialized violence. I don't think of it necessarily being tied to uh, tied to the church necessarily. So, so yeah, so shifting to that to that question, um, because you argue, and I've already, you know, presented in so many ways that, um, lynchings were symbols of, of justice as well as forms of, of justice. The listener, um, might be more familiar with lynchings as symbols of Jim Crow and of racial violence in the United States. Um, how did lynchings differ, um, uh, in, in Mexico, um, or how, how they were similar? And um, what did lynchings symbolize um, in in states like Puebla, uh, Michoacan, Estado de México? Yes, um, thank you. This is a very important question. I mean, and I, because again, I think most um, 
most people, especially in the United States, are familiarized with the history of lynching in the United States. I mean, and, and there have been some efforts to try to globalize this history, but I would say that in scholarly discussions, uh, United States is still kind of like a more center uh, when it comes to our understanding of lynching and even the kind of like images that come to our mind. Uh, and, and there is, of course, like this narrative of like lynching as a as kind of an expression of American exceptionalism, which, of course, like this study and many others uh, uh, prove that that's not the case. Um, so so let me answer um, like in two ways. First, like let me let me emphasize ways in which lynching in Mexico and the United States are actually similar, no? or like even lynching in Latin America at large, how it, it, it does share a lot of similarities with lynching in the United States. So, so even though, I mean, in the case of Mexico, lynchings were not driven by racial uh, differences or they were not primarily used as a tool of racial domination, um, they were a form of social control, very much like they were in the history of the United States. No, I mean these these were acts of uh, by which people tried to establish the boundaries between acceptable and non-acceptable conducts. I mean, there were also ways in which communities established the boundaries between who who belonged to those communities and who didn't. No, I mean, so I think when you examine it like that. Clearly, uh, lynching both in the in Mexico and the United States are used against people that are at the margins of society. I mean, in 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 the case of the United States, it's expressed more vividly through the racial uh, divisions and differences. No, I mean, uh, so against like uh, African Americans, against Mexicans, Chinese, and other racial minorities. In the Mexican case, it's against witches, socialists, communists, protestants, suspected criminals, like all of these people are uh, people that are at the margins of society or in the case of state representatives, because again, I mean, it did happen against uh, police officers, majors, caciques. These are people that are construed as being external to the community or, or as somehow defying the acceptable norms of behavior. So lynching and social control, that's that's one similarity. A second similarity that is really important because it hasn't been studied in the present um, in Mexico, Latin America, is the participation of state actors in the organization of lynching. I mean, just as in the United States, police officers, majors, judges participating in, in its organization, in Mexico too. I mean, there were several majors, police officers uh, that participated directly in the organization of lynching. No, I mean, that a, let, that allow people, that not only allow people to come into the prison and take the, the suspected criminal, but also toll the church bells, I mean, that, that set the stage for it, no? I mean, that hang the, the victim, uh, blurring the lines between legal and extra-legal violence. So, so again, this is another similarity. No? I mean, we tend to think about processes of state formation in Mexico and the United States as, as being very different. But I think, again, when we study these two countries through the, through the lenses of lynching, a very different story comes to the fore. Um, and then a third important similarity is the fact that in both countries, public opinion uh, and public attitudes favor the or, 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 or justify the, the use of lynching. Not everybody, uh, but there was um, a sense that lynching was, and, and this was also the case in the United States, was a necessary corrective for the, for the state's incapacity or unwillingness 
to provide the type of punish- punishment that people deem necessary for these individuals. No? So, so again, in the case of the United States, it's of course the construction of criminality that, uh, of the, or the violence that is completely linked to questions of, uh, of racial domination. In the case of Mexico, uh, it's linked to other questions. No? I mean, to questions of political identity, again, anti-communist sentiments, uh, Catholic identity, the, the defense of these local orders against the intrusion of the federal state um, but there was this sense that that is acceptable no I mean and and, and this in many ways explains why uh, lynching persisted in the history of Mexico now again having said this, uh, there are, of course, certain peculiarities to to Mexico. I mean, I just uh, I just mentioned a few. Um, what I would like to highlight is that lynching was part of the country's process of state building. I mean, they were part of the particular political language of coercion, resistance, and negotiation that perme- permeated uh, and that that helped construe state-society interactions, no? I mean, um, again, the sequencing of the event, the tolling of the church bells, I mean, this kind of performance is very peculiar to the history of lynching in, in, in Mexico, the importance of Catholic religion, uh, the, the way in which witchcraft believes uh, contributes to collectivized violence. They are all rooted uh, in Mexico's own trajectory of state building and also in the in the history of violence of, of the country. So there are things that are peculiar to it, um, but there are certainly others in which, as, as you can uh, tell, there are connections to the United States. And now, finally, um, yes, indeed, like in, in places like, again, like Puebla, Estado de Mexico, I mean, lynching was, again, a way in which communities could assert their autonomy vis-a-vis the state, but they were also a way in which within these communities, people that had a greater influence uh, or that represented the hegemonic value, values could assert who was going to belong, who was not going to belong, and what conducts were going to be tolerable and which conducts were going to be excluded. No? So it was a way, lynching was a way in which communities were created. I mean, in which the lines, uh, the boundaries of these communities were imagined, no? but, oh, because certainly these communities were not devoid of conflict. No? I mean, they were not homogeneous and they were in constant conflict. And that's why lynching was needed in order to, uh, you know, like uh, project this image of homogeneity and, and, and really um, uh, establish the social and political order that existed. Uh, this is, I mean, I love how you're putting this right here. And I hope the listener doesn't feel like they can skip out on reading your book because there's just so much more that you say. I do have a quick follow-up on this point, though, because I love how you talked about the similarities being social control, the presence of state actors, especially the policing actors, and then also public support. Um, just, uh, just a quick question about um, the, the uh, anti-agrarian violence um, from Guardias Blancas in the countryside, because I feel like there's a similarity in the post um, post um, agrarian reform in Mexico and also during the reconstruction in the United States where we might not ever know how many black farmers or how many, you know, um, campesinos were killed by, you know, um, by, and this is my question, is were these vigilante groups or lynching groups? I mean, or is it is it messy because of the historical analysis? What would you say, given your given how you use history and sociology to talk about violence and legitimacy 
in 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 the countryside yes i mean i think that um I mean, first, I would like to say that, yes, I mean, the anti-agrarian violence was a, a very important part of the history of lynching in post-revolutionary Mexico. No, uh, On the one hand, because the agrarian reform, again, kind of like um, destabilized uh, certain uh, agreements that existed or like or, or rather like. Uh, destabilized the, the existing social and political order, no? So, so, so there was a lot of um, anti-agrarian violence that was deeply intertwined uh, with questions of uh, religion, with political disagreements, or, and also with economic interests. So there is a lot about uh, um, the violence against socialist teachers that is informed by opposition to the agrarian reform, but it's also rooted in reactions to the anti-clericalism or the perceived iconoclasm of, of the socialist teachers. Now, the question of Guardias Blancas being um, considered like perpetrators of lynching. So what I would say is that in those cases in which these Guardias Blancas had greater support from at the communal level, and to the extent that they acted uh, through the use of collective, public, overt forms of violence, I would consider it lynching. No, I mean, in my again, in my definition of lynching, if it's a form of violence, for instance, that uh, takes place uh, in a more covert way, that is not collective, uh, and that doesn't include some sort of communal support, then it is another form of extralegal violence, or even, it might even be like a form of extrajudicial violence used by state actors or by para-state actors, but not necessarily lynching. In order for it to be a lynching, it needs to be public, it needs to be collective, and it does need to have some sort of communal support. I mean, this is complicated because I just say that community. I just said that communities are not devoid of conflict, right? So what is a community? What is communal support? Well, what I would say is, uh, by communal support, I understand that it, it the, that the actors are in a way justifying their actions in light of what are the dominant values of our given community. So if that is the case, if that were the case, uh, and these people, I mean, these Guardias Blancas were not just acting in favor of like uh, a couple of families within the communities, no, or, or just representing the, the interest of one particular political elite, if it has this communal dimension, then in my understanding of lynching and in my definition, it is a lynching. No, I mean, and and, and again, the the lines um, are more blurry. No, in between vigilantism and, and lynching, and and you will find in the book that I have several cases in in, in the footnotes. I expand on this. No, on how it is it is messy. I mean, it is it is complicated. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, so, I, and I hope that the, the listener is, is ready with the, with the knee-high boots on to get into the, the muck. Um, so to, to end our lovely conversation and this series um, uh, with, with um, uh, in the vortex of violence um, and in the, con- in the context of contemporary, uh, the contemporary state of violence in Mexico, what takeaways? Uh, do you want for students and scholars of the subject, violence that is, um, when they read your book? Um, so let me say, uh, let me say a couple of things. I mean, I think the first one would be, again, thinking about contemporary uh, expressions of violence. 
that the history of violence in Mexico, uh, and even today what we observe in Mexico, cannot all be reduced to drug-related violence or to the so-called war on drugs, uh, that we need to be able to understand and make visible other manifestations of violence that go beyond a narrative center on narcos or, or even center uh, on the state uh, attacks against uh, drug trafficking organizations or criminal uh, organizations. I mean, we need to understand uh, violence beyond this. Um, I mean, the second thing kind of relates to, the, to this is that we need to move beyond uh, a state-centered and center-centered narrative of violence. No? I mean, that we need to see how violence takes place elsewhere. I mean, how it takes place at the margins, how it's articulated at the communal level, and how not only the state, but citizens themselves have uh, participated in the organization and legitimation of these acts. I mean, I think for too long, History in particular was to preoccupy with how the state exercised violence in a top-down manner without doing enough critical reflection of how citizens and communities themselves participated in the reproduction of this violence. And the same goes true for today in contemporary Mexico. Um, and I think a third point is that Again, I want to insist on this, is that violence is not purely the result uh, of a state absence or, or of a crisis in a state authority or a failure of the state. I mean, that we need to understand that lynching, as well as many other forms of violence, are deeply connected to the ways in which authority was forged and was constructed in Mexico, to the type of state-society relationships that have existed, and also the ways in which um, intra-community conflicts have evolved over time. Uh, in this sense, uh, violence is not an aberration. I mean, it's not an exception. It's not something that just happened or that just hit the country in 2007. No? I mean, it has informed how state society relations are shaped, and it has also informed how subjectivities are formed uh, at, the, at the very local level. No? So we need to understand this long history. No? So again, go beyond the, the drug-related violence, go beyond a state-centered approach and understand that violence is not just the result of a state absence, but it, that it rather is expressive of this long-term history of a state building and also of how subjectivities have been construed um, with or through the influence of, of violence. That's, uh, that's, that's quite the takeaway. And um, when the reader, and when the listener, excuse me, becomes a reader, of uh, In the Vortex of Violence, Lynching, Extra-Legal Justice in the State in Post-Revolutionary Mexico, they will not be disappointed. Just like I am not disappointed with this conversation, it's been a true pleasure having you conclude our set of conversations on gender, geography, and gender-based violence in Mexico. Um, Hema, you've already blessed us with a lovely set of takeaways um, to end the conversation. What would you like to have the last word? Um, thank you, Jason. I mean, just 
I just would like to uh, finish by uh, inviting others to increase this interdisciplinary dialogue. I mean, again, we have so much more, so much to learn. I mean, between historians and social scientists, and when it comes to understanding violence in Mexico and elsewhere, uh, there is there is a very fruitful conversation and cross fertilization that can happen between different methodologies and different theor theories. So I'm very happy uh, to know that you know Noria and you are providing a space that facilitates this dialogue and and very happy if, for having been able to be here with you today and and I hope that people uh, get to read uh, in the vortex of violence thank you Jason <laughs>